Okay. Welcome to you talking with Greg. I am here with Brendan Graham Dempsey. Um, some of you in this space may know him as a leader of meta modern spirituality. Um, he's focused on creatively answering uh, some of the contemporary crises we face, meta crises. He's been hanging out with John Verbeke and Layman Pascal. Uh, he's been building a retreat. He's exploring art and theology and all the kinds of humanistic projects that are coming after postmodernism. Welcome, Brendan, to the program. Thank you so much. I'm I'm really excited. I've uh, been wanting to dig into a number of topics with you, and I'm looking forward to this. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me. Totally. Well, lovely. And you're up in Vermont with animals around you and the fundamental natural spiritual place. It's a beautiful Indeed. thing. And uh, so, so listen, folks, there's some birds behind there and cats and everything else. It's a glorious thing. And I'm feeling that uh, nature loving spiritual uh, connection. So, uh, hey, uh, you know, in terms of the way we start here, I'm a clinician. And so uh, I like narrative. I like people's stories in terms of at least just situating how you got to this place. What's your version of reality and all of that. So can you share for folks kind of where you're coming from in that regard? Sure. And hopefully by the end, you can diagnose me as well. So <laughs> right. I, actually, I'm not super big on, I'm big on conceptualizing people rather than diagnosing them. <laughs> All right. Very good. Well, uh, yeah, no, let's see. Um, so yeah, uh, as you say, I, I focus on um, sort of the spiritual uh, side of, of developments in metamodern culture and um, mm -hmm. kind of the, oh yeah, mythological, metaphysical um, narratological, philosophical mm. sort of uh, angle. Um, and um, is there a way to bring like myth and science together? <laughs> <laughs> is that possible, Brendan? <laughs> right. And so that's why it's been so exciting to see uh, you and many others who are sort of, um, you know, yeah, in this space, like trying to do this, this thing uh, or, or participate in this sort of bigger endeavor, which has really been captivating me for, oh, the better part of well, over a decade at this point. Um, really? Wow, you yeah. got into this thing early then, huh? Yeah, well, so uh, as, as I guess as early as, as I could, you know, mm -hmm. in the sense that, um, you know, I, I grew up in a very religious family okay. um, and uh, started out kind of in a pretty conservative religious uh, mm -hmm. sphere. Mm -hmm. and um and you know christian conservative or yeah evangelical mm -hmm. christian. Ah, okay um yeah. well i live in stewart Shaft, virginia friend uh you know yeah, that's what, we're fairly clear about where yeah. what that lifestyle is like <laughs> well it's funny actually because i grew up in vermont and mm -hmm. so it's we're sort of you know that that evangelical uh context is sort of like a fish out of water in this sort of yeah. situation yeah. so yeah. um but then again at least in in some ways you know the there's a there's certainly an ethos that that certain strands of evangelicalism pick up on of, of sort of embracing that isolationist you yep. know victim sure. mentality as well so <laughs> that kind of plays into that as well but That's anyway true. um yeah no i grew up uh, in in a kind of conservative uh, uh strand of evangelicalism mm -hmm. and um but i was always um really interested in just like um matters of ultimate concern i guess you could mm -hmm. call it uh to use sort of gotillic phrase <laughs> right I, i'm and, a lot, uh, big big fan of that frame yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so I, I mean, that's how I'd phrase it now at the time, what that looked like was through the lens of evangelical Christianity. Um, and so I got really into that. I got really, I wanted to study it. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, basically, um, when I went to college, I'd already started kind of getting into biblical scholarship and things like that, because I wanted to kind of take a seminary track and maybe even wind up teaching at a, like a seminary or something, mm -hmm, like teaching, mm -hmm. you know, biblical studies or something. Right, right. So I got to college and I started studying religion <clears throat> and uh, 
also around that time when a lot of people start to broaden their horizons a bit and, and encounter new ideas and all the sorts mm -hmm, of things. Mm -hmm, um, sure. I mean, some of this had already been happening for me for a few years okay. earlier as well, mm -hmm. but, but sort right, of a right, gradual right. kind of uh, transition into, yeah, kind of more rationalist mode of thinking about things. Um, mm. And uh, the study of religion as kind of a anthropological category. And ah. so thinking mm -hmm. about it interpretively, uh, mm -hmm. University of Vermont, had and I think still has though there's been a recent row as many liberal arts universities have, have been experiencing around like you know basically the department almost got cut recently but there was a time when the religion department was really um one of the a very you know solid forefront um you know uh yeah uh, in the field of, of kind of religious anthropology and um so yeah, studied studied religion from that lens and also continued sort of my biblical studies trajectory. Okay. And this just sort of opened up that whole world into uh, a series of sort of um, frameworks that weren't part of my initial way of looking at it mm -hmm. at all. In fact, seemed to kind of run directly counter to it, you know? Mm -hmm. So in like a kind mm -hmm. of conservative evangelical uh, sort of mythos, it's like, well, Moses wrote the Torah and the you know, disciples wrote the, the gospels right. and this sort of a thing. And then when you start studying composition and you learn the languages and you're kind of learning all the arguments for source theory and all that sort of stuff, you're like, oh, wow, actually, this is a <laughs> lot more complicated than these texts are, you know. Um, yeah. And uh, so that kind of initiated this sort of like, well, hey, what gives, you know, what mm. all this stuff that I learned, but then this mm -hmm. and I was, you know, um, just by via the argument. The old what gives development, you know, <laughs> right. it's like we've been there, right? <laughs> yeah. So I had I had a what gives moment um, and wasn't really finding any sort of satisfactory answers to all of that and um felt like uh i wasn't really in a position at that time to <clears throat> i think do what some people many people do which is sort of reorient themselves still within a faith tradition but mm -hmm. sort of by expanding it to you know include this sort of thing i just sort of saw it like oh wow well, all that's not true um, ah, okay. so yeah i had this sort of grand um you know messy existential crisis as a mm -hmm. result of all that mm. um as well as one needs to do uh, <laughs> if you're gonna grow you know you, yeah, you have to yeah. break into what i would call the systems of justification you were conventionally raised in and all of a sudden exactly. shake that shit up <laughs> exactly um yes so that's a good way of framing that within that talk framework right it was sort of uh kind of a uh yeah, it, uh, conflicting systems of justification and sort of I, I kind of chose um, where I landed on that one. And so anyway, then I entered this sort of really uncertain, crazy time because I was supposed to be heading off, you know, to like teach seminary and do this and that. And now it was sort of like, well, wait a second, what do I do mm. now? So kind of my whole career was sort of upended because of that. Um, so after that, I, after I graduated, um, I took a pretty hardcore turn towards art, which had always been something okay. that I was passionate about from mm -hmm. early, early days. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I went and lived in an artist collective in Burlington for about four oh. years. Um, and uh, under the influence of this sort of philosophy couple that, that mm -hmm. kind of uh, were the sort of patriarch and matriarch of this um, really interesting uh, artist collective. And uh, yeah, wait, what's that? I said, I bet that would be fascinating. Yeah, no, yeah. it was a really interesting sort of dynamic. I was basically living in this little like pantry room off of the kitchen that was like basically the size of a closet, but I was like decorating it with like, you know, neoclassical pillars. And like, I got, I went this sort of hardcore neoclassical turn. I was, I uh, started dressing up. I got really into dandyism at the time. It was, um, it was an odd, it was an odd moment, but I was, mm -hmm. I was really fascinated by the whole like Western canon and the, mm -hmm. The whole Western kind of cultural tradition, which 
um, I discovered via my classics background, which mm -hmm. I did originally because I wanted to learn Greek to read the New Testament. But in the process, right. I also started reading Homer and reading mm. Sophocles and all this other stuff. And I, you know, fell in love with the classical world. And that just sort of like exploded all this other stuff. So wow. um, I, I think in retrospect, I, I think it's it was very much a sort of substitute for this sort of like lack of a worldview that I had at the time okay. um, that I sort mm -hmm. of went from this you know kind of oh yes the world is this way to all the mm -hmm. you know, oh I don't know what the world is at all it's all right chaos and avoid and you know chance and all this and that <laughs> and so then turned to this sort of um yeah this sort of notion of seeking for the transcendent in aesthetics and in nice. arts and huh. um yeah Beautiful. so I spent okay. I spent about four years there um reading basically just more than I'd ever read before reading, trying to make my way through, you know, as much of the Western canon as I could. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and, and did a lot of that, you know, read off Shakespeare and all wow. the, all the Greek tragedies and everything. And, um, and just sort of fell in love. I did a lot of traveling at that time too. <clears throat> um, and the main thing I was doing too, at this period was um, writing. Um, hmm. So I started uh, writing this work that would later basically take me the whole four years that I was doing this, um, which was this epic poem about the death of God. Um, wow. And uh, so, huh. yeah, I was, um, I was on a train in Turin and I was reading Keats and uh, his poem Hyperion, you know, begins with, um, with, uh, with, well, is it, no, it's Saturn. Saturn is, you know, has been dethroned and everything. And he's in this forest and he's sort of like, you know, dealing with his deposition and all this stuff. And um, I was reading it and I was just like, wow, this is, this is how I feel about like my own experience of sort of the Judeo-Christian God has sort of like wow. fallen. Right. And I, of course, also kind of felt that that, that was something culturally that people had mm -hmm. kind of gone through as, you know. So I felt like this would be a really interesting way to at least begin a poem. And then I began it and uh, it kind of just kept going for for wow. a number of years. So it became this sort of 24 canto epic poem in blank verse that begins with this war in heaven and the ouster of God. And then the speaker of the poem sort of is like, comes to the conclusion that, you know, well, gosh, we do still need myth and story mm. and beauty and transcendence. Mm. And so kind of following the uh, kind of epic trope of the catabasis or the descent mm -hmm. into the underworld, uh, the speaker decides to go in search of God and see if he can, mm. you know, basically bring God back to the world in some way. And right. uh, so that's kind of what the poem becomes is sort of this story wow. about um, resurrecting the sacred in some way. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh -huh. many, you know, things don't, don't go uh, entirely as expected. <laughs> and so this, this was a really, this was a really kind of pivotal, um, really kind of, therapeutic really actually sure it's kind of a yeah it's a kind yeah, of a cathartic totally yeah. working through of all uh -huh. this material and right. um it's it's yeah. the you um, know you're the authoring and the unfolding of your own sort of spiritual journey basically so it sounds like exactly it was very much a kind of spiritual autobiography but one i felt that was also sort of tied to cultural history as well right this sort of like totally trying that, trying to understand what we have gone through in the culture uh, from sort of this you know decline line of religion and and sort of the loss of religious sensibility and then the sort of entrance of a kind of postmodern malaise that totally. follows after that and the sort of longing for transcendent ideals and all that and then you know the fraught kind of quest to what do you do about that and totally. you know as we were just kind of mentioning well this is actually right? really like interesting this, uh, this endeavor to try to yeah yeah so uh, no, no go on uh well i'll tell the story of my dad so my dad um was raised in like a Methodist, normal Protestant, you know, normative Protestant structure, uh, goes to a Billy Graham concert and has an evangelical conversion, comes home and for then 
and I believe this is his, you know, late teens, early 20s, and then has a 10-year Cetalite uh, reality of, of conversion. And then, um, but then there are aspects of the church he can't quite get around, predestination, other kinds of things. And he learns more and more about history and ultimately, um, you know, shifts right as he's about ready to get ordained, he shifts and ultimately becomes a history professor. Um, this is in his 30s. And then um, I'm the third of our children. And by the time I come along, we get raised in an uh, atheistic Dawkins-esque type of household. Mm -hmm. um, and I get birthed into then the scientific, naturalistic, material worldview uh, of which I embrace in a particular way, only to find myself as I get further and further into this uh, abyss of psychology and the current state of affairs and the meaning mental health crisis. I didn't have a language for it then, but really even in the analytical structure of understanding what we are and the fundamental dissatisfaction of that structure. And then flipping into what is a potential picture that then I feel called to call the tree of knowledge and then follow that into a garden. That arc has a hell of a lot of parallels with the arc you just narrated, I would say. Yeah, definitely. And in, in your case, sort of cross-generational. Cross, that's and, exactly right. It's like, we put my dad and me together, <laughs> yeah. crossing on your accelerated line. I was like, oh my God, it's like, these are two yeah. totally different parallel lines. <laughs> and and I think that kind of what you were just naming is kind of where this leads is sort of, you know, when you're, because, you know, how, how, how does one, both as an individual and then arguably collectively, go from this sort of atheistic, reductionistic, purely materialistic kind of framework to something that can sort of breathe breathe life back into the world oh. with a kind of um, non-simplistic, non-naive, uh, science-friendly uh, kind of re-enchantment endeavor, right? Um, the the, the yeah. thrust of the, the whole uh, mission of the podcast, you talking with the Greg podcast, is in search of a coherent naturalistic ontology that can revitalize the soul and spirit, give mm. breath to uh, mm -hmm. the soul and spirit and the human soul and spirit in the 21st century. So I yeah. couldn't agree more with regards to where we find ourselves in this time between worlds, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, that's sort of, so that's that's kind of, you know, to, just to wrap up my own kind of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, biographical background of this stuff, that, that was sort of where I was at. I finished that poem and I kind of worked through a lot and was starting to appreciate both by means of doing this aesthetically, but also in terms of kind of the ideas of it all, that there was this really powerful way in which art was involved here mm. and that creativity and that and that the notions of divinity are themselves uh, something that creatively evolve and, yes. and, and shift and, and move with culture. And then uh -huh. there's this sort of like invitation to be like, wow, well, if God sort of, or divinity sort of, or the sacred, whatever you want to call it, right. needs to sort of keep evolving. And if that happens, at least in some ways, by means of human creativity and the arts, uh -huh. then uh, what a beautiful sort of thing. And um, yeah, so I, I, I at that point felt like I could kind of re-engage spirituality again, but from uh -huh. sort of a, a very different angle now. Um, right. And I, I went to, uh, I, I, enrolled and, and got accepted into this uh, Yale master's program uh, called, uh, well, the diploma was in religion and the arts, and I was okay. in the oh. uh, Yale Institute of Sacred Music, which sort of focuses huh. on the, the nexus between aesthetics and, and divinity. Wow. Um, and so I did that program and um, came out, and, uh, and that was certainly very influential as well. And basically, since then, I've just been trying to kind of continue that project forward of... Um, you know, now it's not this sort of, um, how would I put it? Well, yeah, I, I guess to maybe frame that a little differently, it's just that, all right, now that you can kind of uh, situate it as this is some, this is some really compelling and meaningful work 
-huh. that needs to be done, right? Uh -huh. um, and and arguably very urgently needed, um, and is uh, sort of you know it's sort of like demanding of 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 poets and artists uh -huh. and sort of aesthetically minded people of all stripes to kind of get involved with the um, articulation, the rearticulation, the reimagination of of spirituality. Um, these days. And the last thing I guess I'll say in all this is, is sort of like, well, what does metamodernism and all this fit in? And um, I, so just real briefly on that, you know, as I was writing this poem, um, I, I was doing a lot of reading, as I said, about, you know, just history and philosophy and all this stuff. Right, and, right, right. Um, I sort of got a pretty good handle. I felt like it. Oh, yeah. Okay. This is this is what's sort of been unfolding. And I was reading a lot about postmodernism and, and uh, it all kind of clicked. And then I was like, well, what is after postmodernism, right? You know, because there's this, there is this feeling I'd already kind of managed to get out of, which is, um, especially when you're thrown into this sort of disorienting void of meaninglessness and nihilism that you want to look back and you want to find where things did make sense. And so you often will kind of be pushed to reactionarily kind of regress to something yep. more traditional and simplistic. And I, I kind of, I, I learned that that's, that's not the way, you know, that uh -huh. that won't work. And so I was like, well, what's forward, you know, like right. what, what's not, you know, because there's, totally. there's no shortage of uh, people reacting against postmodernism and the whole cultural ethos of it. Right. You hear by name of Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you ever heard of that guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, th there's a no, long there's, list. <laughs> there's a long, but certainly. And, and, and so it was sort of like, well, yeah. So if, if we're not going to go back, we've, you know, the only way out is through. Um, so what's post postmodernism. So I started looking into that and found metamodernism and this would have been around 2013 or so. Um, but I found the work of uh, Vermeulen and uh, Von Doniger and, uh, and the stuff that they were describing just aesthetically was just like, yes, I think yeah. you've had this sort of experience too, where you're I like, did. you're reading about metamodernism. You're like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been doing. Like, this is, That's you know, amazing. this is just these words that are, that are given to it. So I got really involved in that um, pretty early on, actually. So in 2014, they had their first uh, metamodernism in the humanities conference in, okay. um, in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. And I presented a paper there um, and was sort of pretty involved with this sort of what was then only just the cultural studies side of metamodernism. Right. Right. Um, and uh, did, did that, but you know, that kind of, that was sort of a niche field sort of in academia. Right. And that didn't really, you know, um, there wasn't a whole lot of more collective or, or, or activist sort of momentum that kind of came from that until, you know, 2017, and then the Hanzi book came mm. out, and then this community uh, started to form. Um, and right. so, yeah, around 2019, mm -hmm. I was getting, you know, kind of taking the lay of the land after doing some more kind of writing and stuff for a while. And I was realizing, wow, this whole metamodernist community has really sprung up. And, and now it's got all these other really beautiful lineages thrown in and interacting with all these other things and, you know, theories of everything and integral theory and this sort of stuff. And I just finally found like, yes, this is, um, these are, this is, these are my people. Um, and yeah, so that's basically the welcome, story. brother. I hear yeah, it, man. Right? Yeah. Preach it. That's totally right. Good to be here. I, you know, I mean, yes, I mean, the brotherhood is deep. Uh, so in 2011, I produced, you know, a new unified theory of psychology, mm -hmm. uh, which I've characterized as a po literally uh, not knowing anything about metamodern as a post postmodern grand meta narrative. And it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a return uh, to truths with the postmodern critique held that affords the synthesis between. Yeah. Uh, the thesis, the antithesis, uh, and, and enables us to, you know, move forward. And, and I had no idea. And then I, you know, then I got turned into the arts, you know, 
you mentioned something that I really actually, the net connection between divinity and aesthetics, you, I, I think is the way you characterize the mm -hmm. studies you were in. That just piqued my curiosity. You may have to come back to that. Um, so for me, in my scientist and humanistic kind of frame, as a psychologist and psychotherapist, I get very oriented toward uh, sort of the truth science side and the goodness, well, what I call goodness mm -hmm. well-being side of the equation. Mm -hmm but I'm underdeveloped on aesthetics fundamentally in terms of if we think about the big transcendence and, and my fundamental appreciation for the underlying epistemology ontology of aesthetics. Um, and so anyway, just hearing you say that, I was like, hmm, because then what happened to me as my synthesis of science and humanities this way, it essentially converged on a creative mm -hmm. expressive impulse. There's mm -hmm. a sort of mythopoetic beauty uh, in a particular kind of way. And so mm -hmm. it's really interesting for me, and I still think I'm underdeveloped on sort of philosophy of aesthetics, um, but uh, I am. Uh, there's a calling inside of me to weave my science, humanistic, or, or integrity, goodness sides together that affords a particular beautiful way of being in the world. Um, John's transjective uh, framings and the mm. curse of relevance realization, uh, you know, capture me in that way. So mm. anyway, maybe we'll come back to that. But that's a that's a real beautiful kind of. Yeah. Uh, and, up in well, but it's interesting too, right? Because because it's a community, like no one person has to kind of have all the pieces, mm -hmm. right? Because like I'm I might have more of an emphasis on the aesthetic side, but you know, I'm definitely gonna be a lot weaker on the, you know, more hardcore science stuff that that uh, that you and others have. And so it's sort of it's a lovely kind of harmonization and, and uh integ integration of sort of people's different skills and talents that you know it's a very kind of collaborative. Totally. Uh, an ethos and kind of a co-creative sort of environment. So it's, um, and, and in fact, actually, this is sort of a, a maybe a, a good, a decent enough sort of little segue to, 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 to get into what I'm, I'm currently up to, which is, I think, the most exciting element of all this, because as I say, you know, I'm not, I think of myself primarily as an artist, actually, or as a poet, mm -hmm. um, which I, I don't know, may or may not come as a surprise to some people who just mainly interact with you know me as a person through my podcasts and stuff like that but you know um mainly i, I do that because i want to connect with people i want to hear their ideas and i want right. to help this whole thing right but um but but in terms of what i feel like i can like where my strengths are and what what i can actually contribute they're largely in the realm of aesthetics and so mm -hmm. my passion is sort of to take your work and you know the work of hanzi and others and this emerging sort of um yeah, this this post postmodern meta narrative, um, and, and translate that post postmodern meta narrative into an aesthetic, you know, myth poetic production uh, to kind of help, um, sort of, um, yeah, just uh, propagate the the ideas in a way that sort of um, has that kind of artistic. Um, I don't know, energy or potency mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, uh, so much of this stuff is, 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 is in books that are mm -hmm. sort of, you know, it, they're very detail oriented. They're very, you know, footnotes and this sort of a thing. Right. But in terms of like, and you you understand this too, of course, with the thing, you know, with, with your garden and all <laughs> that, it's like trying to translate these ideas into ways that are, um, you know, can be really put into the culture more broadly in, in symbolic form and, uh, and, and literary form in, in my case. So that's sort of my, my current, passion and uh, where I see the next maybe 10 years of my life being oh, devoted to. That's so beautiful. And, and that's exactly right, obviously. I mean, it is the, it's the artists that are going to, you know, generate the creative expression that will and speak to people in a different, fundamentally different kind of way. 
you know, I, you know, I have that calling now as a, as a much lesser calling than what I'm trained for. My train for is, you know, I'm a theorist uh, that dives into the arcane analysis of particular kinds of concepts and then, you know, learns deeply about them and then places them in right relationship to another in an analytic integrity frame. Um, but that's, you know, okay, who the, that may be important, but who gives a shit at one level? Um, in the, at least in terms of the everyday life. Uh, it does. It is relevant in the way we organize knowledge, for, certainly from my vantage point, but mm-hmm. not necessarily relevant, although there's pieces of the UTOC system that are definitely relevant, but it's not relevant in relationship to, oh, that moves me in a particular way, or I see that and it captures the fundamental, you know, intuitive perspectival grip I have mm-hmm. on the world or things like that. And that's what art is so powerful in, in doing. Uh, so that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. we're having some connection here yeah so i was just saying i mean to me the cultivation of that aesthetic is such and it's so crucial and really this if this collective intelligence is going to come together and have an impact it's us with each of our little threads getting woven together in a tapestry you know and and what our talents uh can be brought together and then create some sort of synergistic um, blend of all those lines. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I know. I was just, and I'm, I mean, the way that I look at this too is that the the kind of the aesthetics of metamodernism, even going back to the initial kind of framing of you know Vermeulen and von Doniker, sort of um, what's the word that they're they're very um, inducive to this sort of a project, let's say, right? Uh, whether it's the sincere irony, whether it's the return to kind of mythic, uh, you know, um, there, there, there are specific lines in their works that that really name this very well in terms of contrasting, you know, like these are kind of typically postmodern strategies compared to, you know, maybe what we're seeing is typically metamodern strategies. And, um, and you know, I think Hansi does a, a good job of sort of embodying some of that stuff too with the, totally. the sincere irony and the pseudonymous figure. Um, and this sort of um, playing with reality element, uh, but yeah, I mean it's 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 there, and then I think that that was um, when I found it was one of the things that kind of sang to me at all uh, about it all was that it was like um, here's a way to sort of reengage mythos in a kind of uh, post naive way, right? It's not oh. um, it's not this sort of uh, more traditional way of uh, oh you know what are what are the stories and and how has it always been, right? It's sort of like engaging that register but doing it more so from the level of like okay now we're going to engage this register and so you're sort of a a willing participant in the in the theatrics of it uh and anyway so there's a whole kind of uh really aesthetic theory behind all this stuff too which just really lends itself to this sort of a project yeah i love that one of the more moving collective intelligence sort of spiritual moments i had was with sincere irony I was coming across that concept. Um, I'm not sure if it's exactly the first time I heard it or not, uh, but I was literally reading it and I landed across sincere irony and I basically froze because I then was completely captured by the fact that the entire sensibility that drove me to make this cartoon garden thing, it's unbelievably, you know, ironic and, and at the same time, deeply sincere simultaneously. And it was a very, very, I had no idea that that was even a genre or sensibility when I was called to do it. And then to see that my calling fits, you know, in 2016, I'm being called in this very weird way. I mean, academics don't normally do that kind of shit, you know, it's like, and yet I felt compelled. People were like, what the hell are you doing? It's like, well, I'm just kind of have to do this thing. And then to realize that that genre 
uh, or in that aesthetic was actually now emerging collectively. And it captures exactly kind of, it's a, it, to me, it was like, yeah, that's a weird collective intelligence vacuum that I'm getting like pulled into here. Yeah. It's well, really and cool. what's really cool too, which uh, I haven't really heard discussed much, but it's an idea that really intrigues me and, and could potentially be of great sort of pragmatic use to the, to, for this sort of endeavor, which is that um, when you're working in that register, right? Yes, you can, you can um, engage with art of that kind with a full-on metamodern, sincere, ironic mm -hmm. kind of engagement, right? Mm -hmm. But it also works if you're not fully engaging it in that way either, right? So like mm -hmm. your, your garden, um, is a like a wonderful thing that could be you know like that 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 could be hanging on the wall of a of a kindergarten or something mm -hmm. right or well, or, sure. a, or a you know fifth grade or something right and it's sort of like this is just then part of the sort of cultural world that we're in but then of course there's so much depth to it that it sort of mm -hmm. it sort of then has the potential to be unpacked and and it's like oh wow there's a lot more here but that's that's arguably one of the marks of you know really wonderful and and enduring work of art is that it can kind of be appreciated at so many different levels so the sincere of metamodernism right it's like um it works at a metamodern level of sincere irony but it also works for you know more traditional minded folks who just are maybe going to pick up more on the sincerity side right and it also works for the postmodernists who are going to enjoy the irony of it so you're kind of doing this sort of um you know uh what, what's the word um uh there's a, there's kind of, yeah, there's sort of something for everyone. There's sort of a, it's a, it's a, it's a polyvalent sort of potential mm. work, which I think that myth needs to be, if it's going to be, um, if it's going to work, you know, if it's really going to kind of sink into people's consciousnesses and, and into the culture. So, um, yeah. Yeah, totally. In fact, the garden itself, it's a, you know, kindergarten is actually a particular mm frame of reference. And I work with some people that, that did early childhood education. And we actually laid out a little schematic of a nursery school mm. centered around the theme of a garden, which actually mm. has happened a number of different places. And you could imagine that kind of uh, both the aesthetic and then the educational structure and the ethos that could be brought to bear and then begin the educational structure. And I mean that kind of in a Zach Steinian sense of like mm -hmm. a fundamental intergenerational transmission of knowledge mm -hmm. and wisdom across the sort of that's part of the uh, um mm -hmm. that in the architectural design is actually structured in part to have yeah. that as a thread so yeah no i was I, some of this stuff started to really kind of pick up for me when i was in that uh, master's program because we, we, were, we were even looking at sort of the bible from from the mm -hmm. lens of uh you know well the, the language itself might be rather simplistic right and there's a lot mm -hmm. of you can just kind of read it and okay you get the mm -hmm. basic story right but of course there's so much richness then to the interpretation and the meaning and the cultural kind of uh, mm -hmm. all the different layers of things that um and and, and uh, so Meyer Sternberg was a was a thinker in the sort of vein who kind of talks okay. about this I think it was mm -hmm. the poetics of biblical narrative and um and, but I think it applies to to myth more generally you mm -hmm. know as well and 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 it also applies to you know enduring works like Shakespeare right where like mm -hmm. you can show up in the penny seats and get a good you know sex joke in there but then you're also like listening to hamlet you know opine on the nature of existence and it's sort of like uh there's there's it, when you can have that much range um there's that's kind of i think the, the the greatest possibility in which these things can have um yeah their greatest sort of potential impact in the culture lovely um so yeah, so there's 6,000 different uh, directions we could <laughs> potentially go. I've got, uh -huh. I've got a number. Uh, are there things that you want to cover, obviously, that, uh, that afford us an opportunity to make sure we get covered here? Uh, no, not really. I'm, I'm okay. fire at me. All right. So yeah, so now in terms of like 
uh, you cultivated this retreat. Uh, I'm coming up actually and yes, hanging yes, out I with did. some of my. I uh, wanted to make sure that that got in there because we'll, we'll, I'm uh -huh. sure we'll talk more about that. But yeah, okay. but yeah. Well, certainly. I mean, basically, then uh, I want to also talk about the conversation that you were having with Layman and John Verbeke, mm -hmm. um, and you know what, what, it, where are we, you, in this arc of metamodern spirituality? You know, you talk about the next ten years um, of where we are. Um, so I want to talk about that. The other thing I'm curious about is a little dark Renaissance controversy, you know, in relationship to the video. And I, I watched on the side of that thing was trying to chime in for some game B support uh, when I was on Bard's list. And I kind of want to, I'd be curious to circle in and, and get your take on that reality as, a, as watching some of the, I, I had a pretty good affinity for the little video that came out in relation mm -hmm. um, and just that whole uh, experience on that side. Uh, so those are at least some of the things. And then I kind of want to get into, you know, what is sacred, uh, mm. you know, and, and then because John and I are working on sort of an extended sacred naturalism mm. <laughs> also with Bruce, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and Layman. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to talk to you about this sort of religion that's not a religion or where we need to go and where I am in relationship to sort of, you know, you know I'm actually, I adopt some of Bard's language and Cynthiaism, and I'd like to talk to you about that. So these mm -hmm. are, those are just some of the things that popped into my head. So like I said, it's a smorgasbord. Let me dump yeah, those yeah, out yeah, and yeah, see yeah, what yeah. you want to cool. pick up on. Well, I'll, I'll try to touch on all of it um, maybe save some of the dark Renaissance stuff, which is sort of the least uh, meldable in uh, mm -hmm. towards the end of, of it. But um, yeah. Okay. So let's see. I think um, to kind of from the beginning, where I'm at with a lot of this stuff um, and, 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 and notions of the sacred and things of that nature. Uh, okay. So, so John, I think does a really good job at framing the kind of intellectual history behind uh, where we're at the meaning crisis, obviously. Sure. Um, and I think he does a good job and other people have said this as well, that when you look back at sort of the, those axial age religions, right. That, that it, if there's sort of a certain kinds of metaphysical common denominators there, there's sort of this two worlds mythology, right. Mm -hmm. And there's sort of the, the, the imminent and the transcendent, uh, mm -hmm. however you want to frame that or phrase sure. it, it's different in the different traditions, but, um, but, you know, heaven and earth and that, you know, that sort of a thing. And, um, and then, so, you know, arguably then we go through this whole period via the, uh, you know, enlightenment and the scientific mm -hmm. revolution where we sort of lose the transcendent side of that more and more and sort of start focusing more and more on what we would think of as the imminent and we sort of yep. cut. And so actually this, um, this work here, which is the first work now in the Metamodern Spirituality series, Metamodernism mm -hmm. and the Return of Transcendence is sort of all about this idea, mm. um, which is um, that, yeah, we sort of, we sort of cut away transcendence. Um, and this is a very obviously simplistic kind of way of sure. framing all this, but no, I, one way of thinking about it would be this. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so then this, this process kind of goes all the way into postmodernism where, you know, at least in modernism, you know, as people like Baudelaire would point out, like a, a, what a, what a great modern artist will do is point to the infinite and the and eternal and the enduring elements mm. of modern life which mm -hmm. by uh, themselves are sort of characteristically the transient and the contingent mm -hmm. and the fleeting you know this is sort of what harvey J uh, was talking about and uh and basically what then happens with postmodernism is sort of like no we're not even going to do that we're just like going to wallow in the 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 contingent we're going to wallow in in and we're going to just sort of celebrate total imminence in all of its wow. imminent nature right mm. and so then you see the sort of 
kind of cynical embrace of consumer cultures being mm-hmm. like, yep, this is all there is, you know, just a bunch of signs and, and, and surfaces and, right. you know, and, and what do you do? You just buy stuff and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, mm-hmm. this is, this is, this is just sort of one reading of postmodernism, yep. Um, yep. but, no, but, but I think that there's a lot of validity to that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, then we're kind of like, well, well, this doesn't feel very good after a while, right? And you're sort of like, well, this isn't a very fulfilling life. And what about meaning? What about truth? Like, yes, I know that these things aren't really, they don't really work anymore. And they're sort of, you know, I'm sort of disillusioned with all that metaphysical notion of all that stuff. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, like, I still, I need these things like that, you know, totally. and so there's this, this challenge, which eventually metamodernism sort of negotiates, right. Um, which mm-hmm. is sort of the, the thesis that I have, which is that what this sacred thing is, um, is it doesn't rely on a two worlds mythology, right. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have a sort of, uh, physicalist metaphysics, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that, um, yep. or a naturalist, a kind of, I, I prefer naturalism yeah. myself. Yeah, mm-hmm, you yep. can have a fully naturalistic, even kind of monistic in the sense that, yes, mm-hmm. all things are matter mm-hmm. in some kind of fundamental mm-hmm. way, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and then it's like, it's not that what the sacred is, is something that's sort of fundamentally metaphysically other than that, that we're relating mm-hmm. to in the sense of right. transcendence. It's that transcendent experiences happens within that imminent frame. Exactly. Um, and, and this isn't, um, this isn't, I don't want to make the the suggestion that this is a totally novel kind of way of framing this because in many ways, like the mystics have, mm-hmm. have framed it this oh. way. And, and when you get into the more esoteric elements of all the great religious axial traditions, there's a lot of this sort of way of thinking about it, but at least in popular conceptions, so. this wasn't really the way of thinking about it. And so when I think of the sacred, I'm thinking in terms of what are those experiences of the transcendent? Um, and this is where some of this dovetails a little bit with less stuff that like Lehman um, and yep. Bruce are, are, are doing with kind of post-metaphysical spirituality, yep. where it's like, you don't need to posit the whole yep. transcendent metaphysics to, to, to just do the thing and it works, right? And, um, oh. and so, so there's a lot of overlap there. And I think that, yeah, this also again, t- ties a lot in with the work that John's doing. Um, so well, yeah. Um, there's, that's that's yeah. lovely. Uh, let me give a little bit of uh, my own history, yeah. uh, sort of the logos architecture and personal history that's just super parallel with that. Mm. So I drop into behavioral science methodology. I'm a natural materialist, Dawkins-esque, God's mm. a delusion kind of thing, right? And then and then I'm getting into the problems, especially at the fucking level of psychology, where you really uh, you really have killed ontology. Okay, I argue that mainstream mm. psychology essentially kills ontology because you can't solve the mind matter problem. It doesn't mm-hmm. have the right descriptive metaphysics to mm-hmm. get the ontology of the mental correct. So it then just defaults to epistemology and scientific method. And then it waves its hands. Oh, we're a science, but you're actually, science is really about knowledge. And actually all you're really about mm-hmm. is fucking method. And so that's my critique of mainstream psychology and the way it actually mm-hmm. operates. Um, and then, so I'm on this journey and then I back into uh, justification, okay? So now justification is my insight and it does turn me into a postmodern frame actually, mm-hmm. because all of a sudden it's like, when I hit that, it was like, holy fuck, I'm just a justifying ape. All of the goddamn things I care about, even science back myself, back myself up into, you know, a, almost a Skinnerian. I'm a verbal behavior contingent processor. You know, it's mm-hmm. fucking, I'm just justifying, you know, what it is that I'm doing. And so all of a sudden it's like, yeah, it's ironic but it's and i'm just gonna have to accept it but it's kind of empty too it's like a you're hungering for something more 
Um, and then I fell into the tree of knowledge in 1997, you know, I'm stone one night and this thing pops out of me. And, and it's a very sort of naturalistic, but then transcendent thing, at mm. least in relationship to justification, because what it does is it puts the on t- not, you're not no longer lost in the epistemology of justification. Once you get the tree mm. of knowledge, then you're actually just see it as an ontology. And now you're outside of it and you can actually hold on to it with a much more ontological grounding rather than lost in the epistemological futility of it all. And so it rotated my shift, put me back both in terms of a natural science, and then I was called to label it the tree of knowledge, precisely because it was then actually on a transcendent arc, mm. and then to redeem the transcendence through being itself in some ways, through, through mm. recognizing ways of being that were fundamentally different. And I would use John's, you know, sort of pragmatic transjective. I like to blend pragmatism with John's focus on transjective. And to me, that's like, okay, well, what that really does is like, there are different developmental arcs that land you in different places. Mm. And then you make value judgments about where you want to end up. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to end up in Nazi fucking Germany. You know, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. fucking, mm-hmm. that is hev- hell on earth. Uh, and we can cultivate particular kinds of transjection, recursive relevance, realization processes that land us in love with one another, mm. you know, and, and that becomes a very then clear differentiation. And I use then that at a pragmatic level of justification, what the good is, and then ultimately come to a much more sort of embodied structure and ultimately a thing called wisdom energy and the construction of the garden, which really then turns this into a fundamental transcending the logos, getting in touch with oneness, a, a much more sort of Eastern traditional kind of structure of being. So it's a really fascinating point for me, given my history, to listen to you narrate that and be like, man, I can, I can track my own development on that pretty, pretty tightly. And, and I think that you mentioned the introduction of sort of a, or <laughs> there's so many turns, right, in, in, in intellectual history, but this sort of pragmatic turn, um, which, which you mentioned, which is, which is another way, you could argue, of talking about post-metaphysical spirituality, mm-hmm. right? It's just, it's sort of a pragmatic, well, this works, um, but being able to, yeah, I, th- I think, how would I say this, there's, there's so much there, um, but, but when you think about justification systems, and then you're able to think about how what their sort of pragmatic outcome is in the worlds that they lead to and and and, and things of that nature um, then you're able to talk about value and and kind of relative good based on that system and so you kind of are able to in some ways break free of that epistemological postmodern straitjacket of like well what's true and what's real and this and that oh. right and you can start to be like oh okay yeah well and and that and 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 here's where stuff like um, you know the the, the Hanzian sort of metamodernist mm-hmm. framework um, uh, and, and by extension integral models have been really helpful for me too is sort of thinking about these justification systems along a developmental axis oh. axis and then you're sort of leading to you know uh, yeah huh. d- different different ways of of um, of embracing and thinking about these things and then also locating the different conceptions of the sacred along that developmental right. axis right so right. when you think about you know, my conception of the sacred when I was starting out in my evangelical uh, period towards working mm-hmm. in seminary, I had a very kind of particular God concept, mm-hmm. right, that kind of operated in that particular uh, meme that I was mm-hmm. operating in, in that particular justification system. And then I show up to university and I start thinking and reading and all of a sudden the justifications that I've been working with, eh, they don't really work so well anymore. But I'm really attracted, you know, there's a there's an arrow to that, to those justification systems as well right it's not just sort of um they're not they're not sort of arbitrarily or randomly related it's like oh but this thing 
this is this is taking me somewhere. And so even right. though it's incredibly hard to kind of experience the breakdown of your justification system and all of in your right. associated values with it, you're still there's something that brings you to do that in making that leap into, you know, sort of a new developmental terrain, as it were. So totally. As, yeah. I would just say as long as you're on a well, as long as you're on a developmental trajectory. Uh, as a mm -hmm. clinician and watching people have existential crises that just implode them, mm -hmm. there are cases in which people just get broken by yes. life or by belief systems and whatever they cling to then shattered. And we can hope that there's a regrowth after whatever mm -hmm. existential dark night of the soul that melts and then hopefully reforms. Uh, sometimes yeah. folks actually get broken, I think, uh, and don't. But at the level of the kinds of trajectories we're talking about what and what kinds of trajectories are really, I don't know, transdectively transcendent, whatever, these are the kinds of things that then grow out of the, the break, you know, mm -hmm. what comes after the break. In a yeah. And I think at least a, a meaningful subset of the, the, the broken elements or the broken instances are when um, you kind of get to a point in a justification system when maybe it no longer coheres and is enough to kind of justify your world, so, but, but you're not really able to then take on a new one or the next one, yep, as it were, exactly. you know, and so then you're just sort of wallowing in, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and arguably that means that, well, okay, that's maybe, maybe that, it, that justification system matches your whole kind of being where you're mm -hmm. at developmentally and all these things. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there's also this sort of um, unfortunate, but hard to avoid impulse to be like, oh, if development exists, then everyone needs to go through the whole thing, right? And sort right. of like, well, you know, maybe, probably not. And, and maybe, <laughs> you know, whether that, I mean, clearly, like, is that even possible, right? Is, and, mm -hmm. and whether or not that would even be beneficial is sort of a different question. So you start to appreciate the diversity of people's different religious and spiritual conceptions when you start to see, you know, that everyone's sort of working with a different uh, uh, set of sort of, um, yeah, justification mm -hmm. um, propositions in some ways. And so, yeah. Um, but, but, the, but the one for me, what I'm really interested in trying to probe is sort of like, all right, well, we'll well, what is the sacred, what's the God concept in metamodernity, right? You know, mm -hmm. what does that look like? And so, yeah, I, I think that that's what I was just saying about some of that imminent transcendent uh, elision that happens and sort of looking for, you know, the way I kind of tend to think about it is like, there used to be this sort of dimensionality to the world of uh, that things had mm -hmm. depth, right? Yep. And then when you, when you lose because you, you're working with more than one axis, as it were, mm -hmm. there's like a, there's, there's, yeah. And then when you lose the other, the other axis, because you're just sort of everything is imminence, mm -hmm. then you lose depth and then you lose meaning and significance. And I think that what, what the metamodern, what characterizes like a, a quintessentially sort of metamodern approach to thinking about spirituality and transcendence is you don't just reposit the old X, Y axis. You sort of look for a Z axis. Mm. You know, there's like, there's a way of sinking into imminence yes. rather than just sort of like going yes. out of it or something like that. Totally. And so there's a lot of ways that, um, that, 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 that can be explored. So I'm, you know, That'd be one way of answering sort of that sacred question. As Total. It were. Yeah. Well, it, and, and I mean, the, the tree of knowledge affords a particular kind of perspective on this. At, at first at it from an analytic perspective, uh, it does grant a particular axis around complexification. And then the complexification is the differentiation of parts that then get unified in particular ways. And I think you can see a lot of what, you know, a unity differentiation and, and even what it sort of at least abstracts is ultimately sort of, there are complexification processes that then have to come together as say, and at a, just at a general level, I have to fight off, we'll say entropy, 
Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. And so entropy is constantly working against complexification. You mm -hmm. have to pull in at a mm -hmm. physics level, you have to pull in what's called a free energy rate density flow yep. uh, to use off of Eric Kiazon's basic model. Yep. And I think we even, you know, maybe had some exchange in relationship to that. But, and then you can track, a, I would argue, a free energy information flow if you bring in like Carl Friston's work. Um, and you can put on top of that, and the tree of knowledge then just tracks this evolution of complexification. And then you can ask questions kind of systematically about what affords that negentropic complexified organization. And there are certain consistent processes mm -hmm. that then begins. And I believe a lot of our value systems, our investment mm. value systems, yes. are oriented in relationship to this kind of harmonizing mm. negentropic structure that is well positioned against the forces of entropy at higher and higher levels of complexification, which means that essentially the gravity of entropy is working harder and harder. And you have to be in more and more uh, oriented flow to maintain that structure because there's more and more forces that are pulling against you. You can extrapolate that concept, at least from a tree of knowledge perspective, and you place the garden on top of the tree of knowledge, and then you place what's called the elephant sun god on top of that. And then that becomes essentially your ultimate transcendent concern, a lodestar uh, in relationship to trying to maintain the forces of negentropy that afford the complexification that give rise to the kinds of things that we call good, true, and beautiful. Amen. Yes, I love it. I, I totally agree. I, I wanted to actually ask you a couple questions about this too, because when we spoke on my podcast, you'd mentioned mm -hmm. the, the, the elephant sun god. And I was like, I want to hear more about that, which I do. But I, this also leads directly to the question I was going to ask and, and slash a point I wanted to make too about what I think of metamodern spirituality, because, right, I mean, in the old kind of axial age, uh, traditional sort of God concept and value concept and metaphysical mm -hmm. framework of the world, right, you had a kind of, it's certainly under, definitely kind of a, well, I'd say both Plato and Aristotle had versions of this, but there was a, a teleological element. There was a mm -hmm. there was a, a kind of a sense that there was an ultimate sense of good, right? Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of these ideas get just shellacked in the scientific revolution, totally. you know, and Darwinism comes around. It's like, no, there is no teleology. It's just this and that. And, uh, and the idea of, 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 you know, you know, Hume comes along and kind of separates, you know, is and all, all this stuff. Right. Totally. And so then you're just sort of left in this, uh, yeah, mechanistic kind of materialistic mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. But, but what has been so exciting to explore and discover through your work and others is like uh you can start to um resituate some of these the, the ideas that were intimated in those early philosophical frameworks and start to actually link them up to some really solid scientific uh you know complexity science basically and when you do that you have a really solid basis for starting to talk about things like value and you know uh telos even and so that was going to be sort of a point i was going to make one also about the sacred of sort of seeing personally i i identify that process um as being having a sacred quality to it let's say and i wanted to ask you what what you thought of thinking about it that way um and then maybe just to throw on to that yeah like i, I want to hear more about the elephant sun god convert <laughs> me to the, to the religion of the elephant sun god yeah okay well, well basically first off yes um i i absolutely i mean the whole point of the tree of knowledge system is that we that the modern empirical natural science enterprise, which I sometimes call men's knowledge, uh, and then I want to say it's limited and ultimately you need wi wisdom-oriented knowledge, which becomes women's knowledge in the 21st century. So just out of play, I often play off metaphor, you know, uh, acronyms and things like that. But modern empirical natural science grabs a hold of a couple of different epistemologies, okay, and, and it creates this sort of objectivist, which is really an intersubjective objectivist 
frame, meaning you have a bunch of different observers that can then observe behavior. And then that behavior then can be tracked empirically in a particular way. And there are certain reductive mechanistic lines that can be drawn, meaning that you can get inside of things and then orient a particular cause effect down uh, and that's called reductionism. And that gives rise to a particular reductive structural mechanistic view of the world, which turns out to be unbelievably important for understanding a line of the world. But it's a line of the world, not the sphere of the world, if you will, or, or the entire field of the world. You actually need simultaneously with a reductive analytic perspective, you actually need to see the whole thing. You need a developmental behavioral systems view which is to contextualize whatever line you're placing in. And this is just at a general level. So there's a individual reductive line that then needs to place in a holistic field line, okay? So, and scientists didn't really understand that in a general level. The tree of knowledge comes along and basically says, listen, people, you have mistaken the parts of these reductive lines for the behavioral whole. And we need to actually be able to contextualize your parts inside a behavioral whole to make any sense out of them at all. The idea that you could reduce it down to the parts and then specify what the whole would be is wrong. You have to be able to see the whole and then see the part in relation. Right. So, so what the tree of knowledge then affords is a fundamentally new map of big history that affords a descriptive metaphysical system of the knower to organize the whole in relation and then allow you to see the structural mechanistic insights that were generated by physics, but also recognize as, as every fucking person did well, before somebody like Laplace comes along and a few other people is like, we have developed a knowledge system a matter in motion, for matter in motion, not for life, not for animal minds, not for human minds. They knew that they would need developments which become ultimately complex adaptive systems at one level. And the tree of knowledge then comes along and actually gives us the descriptive metaphysics to delineate that ontology, to tie together meta theory and create a holistic picture. And so it can come along and then say, hey, it's got a thing called the periodic table behavior that actually classifies the part whole relations and affords clarity in relationship to the structural mechanism line also shows that it's just a line. You need also a holistic developmental behavioral systems view. If you know your integral theory, all that basically means is there's an individual exterior view and a collective systemic exterior view. And you need both of those from a science view, which by the way, is only gonna be the science view, not the interior individual or not the, uh, the interior uh, collective, which is gonna be a humanistic at an individual and collective level. Uh, so I'll stop there and basically say, yeah, well, first off, what, the, what was brought to bear through the tree of knowledge is the natural science project critique then that says you're never going to get your metaphysics right based on coming off of so the eo wilson's and sean carroll's of the world you can anchor the shit there but you better get it right and the reason is they actually don't have a holistic view especially when they can hold mind tree of knowledge comes along because i'm a psychologist and i'm like i understand what the fuck happened with mine i get the variables right create a new map of big history and then that's going to structure a naturalistic ontology that's actually going to be up to the task of the human soul and spirit uh, so that's the first step is to be like, hey, we can go from physics to biology, to psychology and the social sciences, but we need to do descriptive metaphysics to get the ontology correct. Yeah. And, and, and then, so this is interesting because like, um, so you, you, you mentioned uh, Eric Chesson, or that's how I say his name, Chesson, but however you say his name. Uh, Chiazon, I think. Uh, Chiazon. Maybe it's. <laughs> um, yeah. 
you know, his work and free, free energy rate density and that sort of thing and complexification, you can map all that. And he's, he's, he makes great pains at the beginning of his, uh, of his book, almost in, to a degree where you're like, you know, he doth to protest too much here that he's like, I'm, there's no great chain and none of this is like, yeah. you know, spiritual or sacred yeah. or anything like that. And, and so, but what's interesting, and I think an open question and in, in, in some ways a fraught and dangerous mm-hmm. one, because you don't, uh, well, let me finish the thought and then I'll mm-hmm. qualify it, uh, that there's a, the, the potential for seeing these things as being, um, what's the word? I mean, I, I guess just uh, of, of being um, imbued with or no that's not the right word uh i guess just to use the word sacred again you know like if you think about what sacredness and sacrality is about and about the way that your um that your behavior uh adjusts to to things that are perceived as sacred in a particular Mm -hmm. way right Mm -hmm. the imbuing of these things with importance Mm -hmm. highly relevant uh highly Mm -hmm. deeply meaningful deeply emotionally Mm -hmm. impactful and affective Mm -hmm. and these sorts of things right um which brings us back into the realm sort of, of aesthetics mm-hmm. uh, because these are all the, the, scent, the felt and sensed components of these things. Uh, it's sort of, for me, it's like, well, what if we treat these ideas with a, a, an air of sacredness about them, mm-hmm. right? If, if, as you say, which I think is a great way of putting it, which is that we are, our values are aligned to that which optimally and maximally, you know, produces sort of negentropic, um, you know, uh, effects, as it were, so that, so that um, as we complexify, there's sort of an, uh, a kind of built-in uh, range of, of potential value sets, right, that kind of are associated with that complexification process, and then are rooted in that complexification process, and, and thus, in some ways, meaningfully, if you buy into that, like, grounds morality and ethics and potentially aesthetics and other things as being related to this process as we're sort of going through this mm-hmm. um that it, it but kind of remains the, the next step to sort of view this spiritually right mm-hmm. to then say well if if this is true mm-hmm. and it's a big picture account of reality mm-hmm. and that reality specifically including human reality and our mm-hmm. particular you know, whether it's the apex or at least somewhere high up this complexity stack, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Then this is a meta-narrative that in the past, you know, meta-narratives being imbued with their sense of like, well, this is what's important and this is Mm -hmm. what is meaningful and and this is your basis for, you know, behaving and Mm -hmm. and acting and operating in the world, right? Like this sort of kind of gets framed or at least is, is... sort of set on a platter to be framed mm-hmm. as sort of like a, a in mythological terms let's say absolutely um of course there's many dangers with doing that because anytime mm-hmm. you're taking a scientific framework and then either well yeah then you're <laughs> taking it sort of out from the kind of realm of strict um scientific uh you know ways of thinking about it there's always ways that that can that can be a, a unfortunate way that that can go but that's how i i would look at it and so what yeah. you're talking about is the elephant sun god that sort of is that kind of omega point or or this sort mm-hmm. of um thing at the top of that uh is sort of like well what do we call that and how do we relate to that and and what if we what if we were intentional about mythologizing and mythopoetically symbol, some giving symbolic form to and some, uh, you know, uh, yeah, uh, imagining this sort of conception in these terms in the sacred style as, as layman, um, to use his phrase. Right. So that's sort of, 
that's it for me. Like, that's what I'm all about. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So I'll just add, so uh, I love Eric's work as a physicist. Okay. So Eric Eason's work as a physicist. Um, but what he doesn't get, he doesn't really, and he'll admit this, he, he plays around with the concept of information, but it's a very slippery concept. So he boxed down into the foundation of energy thermodynamic frame, hence the free energy rate density that he works from in relationship to um, structuring his argument. Okay, But if you actually pay attention to his, uh, the evolution of complexification argument, uh, he puts something like an F-14 fighter jet as the most complex thing, because when you run the numbers on an energy rate density thing, you get the F-14 fighter jet. Okay. Yeah. And I've talked to him and basically, you know, my argument with him is that while you've mastered the, the bottom energy to matter line, and you sort of are tracking the lifeline, you actually bottom out in your understanding of information processing communication networks. And really what we're talking about is complex adaptive systems and your energy free energy rate density system is really, we have to build in a free energy information rate density process, okay? That affords information processing and communication. And what that is, what he's missing is the evolution of epistemic feedback loops, information knowing systems, okay? So as a physicist, he doesn't really have a good framework for understanding the process by which the emergence and evolution of knowing systems, i.e. the process by which organisms, animals, and people actually generate information processing systems that model the environment and then use that for predictive processing to get ahead in a complex adaptive way. And, and, and I've talked to him. I mean, he came down here and we had a good, we had a beer together and all this other stuff. And then, and I shared, I said, Hey, um, there are, do you see these cones, Eric? I was like, Eric, the fucking cones are for a reason. It isn't just a straight line of energy rate density. There's actually something else happening. And I argue that what's actually happening is an epistemic process that as a psychologist, I have to deal with. And Mm -hmm. your framework is not and in physics frameworks, do not, they're ontic ontological. They're, oh, it's an unfolding wave of a, yeah. But then remember, there are knowing systems that actually get trapped in there. And you mm-hmm. guys don't know how to do subjective construal knowing systems. You try to reduce them to your own, but actually they're a different kind of thing. The tree of knowledge says they're a different kind of language. Mm-hmm. And actually what the tree of knowledge does that the cosmic evolutionary Erichiesen doesn't place the knower in the fucking system. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's just an evolution of complexification. It's like, okay, so your F-15 fighter jet is equal to you figuring all this shit out? I was like, from my vantage point, no. It's like you and I are on a fundamentally different level of complexification. So your energy information, energy free rate density then doesn't really work because empirically, at least by every intuitive measure, you and I are having a more complicated conversation than that F-15 fighter jet. And I was like, because it's actually, it's the complexification Mm -hmm. of energy information networking that is actually operative and what the tree of knowledge maps. So we had that, you know, dialogue. And what I would then say is that the tree of knowledge then affords the knower. I will say that there are a lot of big history people that kind of go spiritual. And he is, he's a modernist, totally, Eric. And he's like, I hate that fucking shit. And and, and it's and it does drive you crazy at some level. If you're a metaphysical naturalist, people start bringing in all sorts of concepts and then they blend them together as if that actually makes sense. And they nod knowingly with all the anecdotal evidence. You're like, but you just ruin coherence here. Uh, And that's a huge price to pay. Uh, And so he's frustrated with that. But it's like, I'm not costing you coherence. In fact, your system is actually still stuck with the problem of fucking psychology because you actually can't get to mentation with meta. You uh, you die out at psychology, Eric. Um, so anyway, we had all that conversation. And by bottom line is, is that once you get this, now you have a big history naturalistic map that's up to the task of managing this conversation descriptively and causally, mm. okay? 
Then we can flip into the yeah. process by which we are embedded in this conversation, then start to get to value-based claims of embodied living. And then when we do that, now we've done a rotation from a scientific into a humanistic frame. When we're in a scientific humanistic frame, now all of a sudden what's going to come available to us is our own valuation of the sacred. Yeah, and just from my own personal experience, I can say I've talked to some fighter jets and they're pretty dull. They, they <laughs> not great conversations. Their justification systems are very lame. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I think you're right. And actually, I think maybe the, the, the context in which we did discuss some of this was on the listserv about trying to, because I think that there's an opening and, and some work that needs to be done. Of like, it seems like it uh, has a really good, the complexity, the complexification um, in the at the level of of matter, mm -hmm. um, but as you point out, right there are these other information processing things that then that's what we need to be measuring the complexity of, right? So it's not just the energy and uh, and that that we're looking at. It's also then how do we think about the complexity of the system of the human or the animal, let's say, um, you know, nervous system. How do we think about the complexity of a human culture and, and by extension sort of justification systems? So then the, the, the kind of interesting research program would be, well, do these different planes uh, of reality, are these different levels of complexity of, you know, uh, matter, you know, uh, uh, life, mind culture do they require different metrics that can deal with that sort of a thing which you know this starts all becoming very interesting because once you start really seeing the consilience between this, this the science and the meta narrative which is to say also then kind of the spiritual there's uh they're not they're not separate right like these are like these these almost become theological questions you could even say you know like uh totally. yeah so um well well then this is okay so here's another so i mentioned like sincere irony the other unbelievable empirical spiritual event i had was around what's called the singularity okay uh, so so ray kurzweil second charge of google develops this thing called singularity university in 19 2005 i think it is publishes the singularity is near and what he's doing is he's tracking the evolution of accelerated complexity and it's not very co complicated it's basically if we have metrics of time till when big events happen uh so say when brains were developed or, or when sexual reproduction happened or then in humans like when the printing press happened um, they were big, and then there's the distance between the next big event, okay? And if you measure the distance between the next big event, you can track it on a thing. And what's happening is next big events happening faster and faster. There's a smaller and smaller amount of time. So the denominator on the time is going slower and slower as you get to the next one. And then that basically begins to elevate a curve, okay? And then if you're tracking a kind of complexification, then essentially big events that are starting to happen in, almost instantaneously, and you get the curve that goes vertical. And if he's tracking the acceleration, he claimed that, hey, by 2045, based on this accelerating exponential, you're going to get a vertical line. We're going to call that the singularity. And then we'll have opened up a whole nother dimension of complexification where and new inventions are happening essentially instantaneously or whatever. Okay, so that's the singularity from his point of view. Well, then this Russian guy, uh, Andrew Kodorov, or sorry, uh, I don't speak Russian, so I, blow, I murdered that. But anyway, he comes along and he's like... I was just going to say, you probably at this moment won't be in danger of offending any Russian sensibilities. <laughs> right, well, right. Uh, there are bigger point. issues on the, on the <laughs> Russian table in relationship to issues that are operating. So anyway, he goes around, he's like, you know, well, that's all Western findings, at least the ones that are cultural. Obviously, the evolutionary ones are pretty, but we have our whole Russian, Eastern, Asian history 
And there are all these big events that happen to us, gunpowder and blah, blah, blah. And so they're based, he then takes the Russian history of major events, okay? And he plots the frequency with what's happening. And he shows it's the exact same curve, although he shows it's called a hyperbolic exponential rather than just a straight on exponential, which means the very final tail is actually speeding up at a faster and faster rate than Ray Kurzweil said. He uses this very simple hyper hyperbolic curve to line Kurzweil's data and his data from the, and what he finds is an unbelievable curvature, okay? Like at a 0.994 and a 0.996 degree of, uh, the R value, which is the correlational value of this particular curve mapping to this thing, which is unheard of in social science. I mean, this is like a physics thing, you know, there's like, okay, we're going to map this to the level of precision. We know we're tracking this line. That's what it looks like. And the, if it, I don't I make it the slightly screwed up, it doesn't matter. But one of them, say the West line, once he recalculates it, it's not 2045, uh, it's 2027 that has actually, this thing goes vertical. And on the e Eastern Russian line, it's 2029, okay? So 2029 is happening, you know, between 2027 and 2029. And I'm just like here at Utah, you know, so thinking out, oh my God, I figured out this kind of system that can pull all knowledge together and we can build this digital age. We can have this metamodern sensibility in this time between worlds. And there's a complexification curve that says in eight years from now, this thing is going to go sort of vertical and we would then enter into a new fifth dimension of complexification where the digital and our knowledge and our wisdom potentially emerge in a particular kind of way. And my little thread is part of that fucking line. And I'm seeing other brothers across the line. You know, it's like close encounters of third kind. People are seeing this shit, you know, and I'm like, Jesus, you know, I was like, hallelujah. And I was like, if that isn't a goddamn, like, what is happening to that? You know, and, and I'm agnostic in relationship to my foundation, but I'll just watch that. And I'll just watch what my body does to that. My body's like, ah, you're seeing something. You know, there is something that whatever the hell that is, something's happening. Uh, yeah. So, you and know, then I, but then the question is sort of, um, well, there's a lot of questions, I guess. But one, I mean, um, a couple things. I mean, the question, I guess, immediately for me is like, you say that you're agnostic about the kind of foundational, you know, mm -hmm. ontological, metaphysical, you know, mm -hmm. element of it all. But like, um, at what point are we sort of justified in saying, you know, hey, this seems to be a thing, you know, and like this, there's like a structure here. And if it is going somewhere, right, that, that's question one, because like there's a there's a religious impulse that kind of kicks in. Our, yep. our eschatology, right, turns totally. on and we're all like, hey, and then, but this is also the danger too, right? Because then we can mm -hmm. become apocalyptic, you know, and be yep. like, you know, oh, the end is near, 2027 is upon us, totally. you know, like the, the singularity, the fifth mm -hmm. joint point, you know, is upon us. Um, and so there's sort of a delicate balance there. And I think maybe this is where some of that sincere irony can kind of do some work, right? Because totally. like you kind of hold, you hold the things loosely enough that you don't kind of fall into that fanaticism of like, you know, of, of going out into the street and kind of, you know, totally. whatever, whatever you could even do by going out into the right. street with a sign. Right. But right. Uh, but still, there's sort of like a we hold the meta narratives loosely enough that we avoid that the kind of worst parts of that idealism um, that, that we saw in, in, totally. in not only modernity, but also uh, traditional kind of religious fanaticism, which is exactly the function of the elephant sun god, at least. In yeah. So tell me about the elephant sun god. Yeah. the elephant sun god? What's the what's the image about? And, and uh, uh, yeah. Right. So, so um, I, it, it was the concluding comment that I make in an essay. Um, which basically is the story, my own narrative, it's called, Can You See the Elephant Sun God? Okay. Um, and it's my own narrative into this metamodern space. 
all right? Um, and fundamentally, uh, it, it relates to Alexander Bard and the concept of syntheism, okay? It relates to my own awakening of a sincere, ironic, metamodern sensibility and into this new space that, oh my God, there's a whole new cultural sensibility that I am now part of, okay? Um, and, and basically, it's in telling that story, it end, it's a seven-page essay that ends with this kind of question, can you see the elephant sun god? The, the, the reference are a couple things you have to be aware of. So in my opening chapter of my book, A New Unified Theory of Psychology, it starts with from racing horses to seeing the elephant, okay? And what it says is, is that what psychologists have done is they position their horses on schools of thought and then they race them against each other, okay? Um, and the proper metaphor when you actually are able to see the whole is the blind men and the elephant, Okay, so that each of them are grabbing an aspect of the human condition, and with a holistic narrative, you can weave that tapestry together and see the picture of the elephant, rather than the various parts, and rather than race them competitively, you stitch them together to see the whole. So that's been a very common metaphor for me to grab a hold of in relationship to that. And then what I did, ultimately, in, in relationship to my, um, what, I, what I came to believe, so I'm an agnostic, meaning I'm not foundationalist in terms of ontic. The ontic reality, is it spiritual, is it energy, is it whatever, what the hell comes before Big Bang? I, I don't fucking know. You know, it's like, it's like, so I, you know, so I'm agnostic in relationship to that, meaning I'm not a foundational ontic person, okay? Um, I then adopt the strongest version of, of the epistemologically justified version of what is at the level of physics. So I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, that shit is, I study that shit a lot and was like a lot of fucking knowledge there, you know, in relation. Um, so then I'm going to ground my stuff on a natural science in terms of an ontological picture based on the correspondence theory of truth that science is. And I go, okay, we'll build that as a map relative to the territory of the ultimate nature of the territory. I'm not sure of. I'm atheistic in relationship to the traditionalist pre-modern gods and their dual world mythology, uh, which has a metaphysics that in ontology that really doesn't work. Okay. But then I become a syntheist. And with Bard's framing, basically what I do is I'm like, I believe in the concept of God. <laughs> the concept of God works. And if we believe this whole notion that I laid out, um, Ray, Ryan Aslan, I'm blanking, uh, he wrote a book that was influential to me called God, A Human History. Um, and, and Karen Armstrong wrote a book called The Case for God. And both of these structure essentially God is that what you move towards when you embody transcendent practices? And it looks for what humans do when they get together and are oriented toward a healthy concept of God, mm -hmm. okay? So in both cases, I can now take the concept of God that has something, an enormously powerful idea for humans, okay? And if we are then oriented toward the ultimate concern and we can use this as a lodestar to abstract, say, these negentropic coordinating functions, and then place them in our divine double, to use a Corbin term from John, which is like, I can project my ideal self and you can project yours and we can find shared values and we can orient towards our ultimate concern. And the elephant sun God says, hey, there's a coherent integration so of light okay, and power that we can see also from a pluralistic angle. Notice the various parts of the elephant. You might see, I, so what I see, for example, from the garden is I see dignity and well-being with integrity. And then I ultimately see also wisdom energy. So these are my fundamental values. If you come to me as a Christian and you're like agape, it's lovable, you know, and somebody else says, you know, it's freedom embedded in dignity for, you know, there any, it's nirvana, you know, it's a particular kind of emptiness and oneness. There are six 
lots of different variants in relationship to this ultimate concern relation, okay? But they're all gonna actually have particular resonant frequencies. So it's a coherent integrated pluralistic icon for the good, that's our ultimate concern, however we might position ourselves, depending on our particular and collective, you know, group community belief system around what the good, true, and beautiful is. Yeah, definitely. And it's like, you know, give me an icon of the elephant sun god, right? And then, uh, you know, but but this is, ah, yes. So I think it's a beautiful way of putting it. And I mean, I have a million thoughts based on all of that, but, um, but I feel like, with all the resonances that are there, right? There's like, it, all this is just very exciting um, for, you know, the, the prospect of thinking this sort of age old kind of long desires, basically since the scientific revolution happened of, of, and, and people started to see some, some light between, you know, the church, let's say, and, and what those crazy uh, alchemists and scientists were up to, well, less so the alchemists, but, you know, and it's sort of like, huh, these are kind of doing different things. You know, um, basically, since we started losing that whole transcendent thing, it's like this transcendent, you know, the return of transcendence reimagined, as it were, um, you know, is is in a science, not just science friendly, but where the, the convergence of the scientific meta narrative and a kind of spiritual meta narrative are coming together is um, that's a, that's potent stuff. You know, I, and totally, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, the word unified is bought a borrowed from consilience, whatever I define unified, it's consilient. Mm -hmm. Um, and EO Wilson fails at consilience because he's anchored to an ineffective natural science metaphysics, you know. But we can upgrade the met natural science metaphysics, and when we do it through the tree of knowledge, all of a sudden, a revitalization of transcendence in, in, in many of the embodied practice ways of the wisdom traditions becomes very alive and available. And now all of a sudden, mm -hmm. yes, you have a consilient connection between a post-postmodern metagram, meta-narrative spirituality, and a proper conception of what actually science teaches us holistically, uh, balanced with the reductive insights it affords, but mm -hmm. holistically. Uh, and then now you actually have a very rich science and a very rich spirituality that are mm -hmm. consilient. Yeah complementarity to each other and then you're like well that should be something powerful yeah and then for me i'm like you know poets to come poets to come like where, where are the artists here let's uh let's Lovely. Let's, yeah. let's 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 give this uh beautiful aesthetic symbolic right, or else it's know? gonna look like that shit <laughs> <laughs> we need we well speaking of pluralism we just need you know we need we need a whole bunch of different styles and voices and uh right. you know it's got to become a cultural uh production um and um yeah, that's, and that's, that's where you're calling for. I, I can't, I totally, and that's, you know, the, to me, that's right. There is a, and, and actually we can even put it more, if we use some of Zach Stein's framing, okay, I, there's actually, we're actually in an educational crisis. And by mm -hmm. that, he means a fundamental need mm -hmm. to consider the intergenerational transmission of knowledge, mm -hmm. okay? Um, and if we don't get that, and there are lots of reasons why this is a great diagnosis of the fundamental challenge of our time between worlds, because it's what knowledge are we able to extract from the past, okay, that we can internalize and trust and grant to our children as the world faces both the multiplicity of all these prices and change, uh, problems and changes so fast, right? Mm -hmm. So how, what knowledge is going to, and now, and within that context, we're now surrounded in bullshit in our chaotic fragmented pluralism. Okay, mm -hmm. so so with all of these issues, there is a deep problem that we're facing. What I call the digital identity problem, but it's another word for the meta crisis. 
And mm -hmm. if there's an opportunity of a subset of individuals that are actually weaving together a tapestry that does afford a path through this fifth joint point or whatever, then the singing about mm -hmm. that, the writing about mm -hmm. that, uh, the artistic creative expression and relationship to that is absolutely crucial to the entire process of the collective awakening that needs to happen yes. pretty fucking fast. You know, we don't have a, we don't have a fucking century. Yeah. Uh, this thing actually needs to be happening. So anyway, yeah, no, I, yeah, <laughs> anyway, go ahead. yeah, yeah, I was just saying, I mean, like, that's, that's also the function of mythos, you know, is like that, 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 that mythos is, is the, the contextual, symbolic, social, imaginary, religious, imaginary container in which uh, cultural transmission happens, and in which, you know, uh, yeah, education happens, really. And so with all these overlaps between, it's not just that uh, the narrative itself is evolutionary and complexifying and developmental in nature, it's also that it needs to be translated uh in, in terms of different developmental uh, styles and registers, it oh. needs to be um, it needs to be downloadable uh, from different uh, within different current justification systems, you could say. Um, and yeah, that we need, and, and so this then becomes a sort of building, you know, process mm. of like this Love is, yep. um, and so yeah, uh, yeah, I, 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 I I'm tempted to. Uh, take your your mention of bard and synthism and all that as sort of a potential segue into dark renaissance stuff but at the same time i'm really jamming on all this stuff so yeah uh, no yeah no i mean I, yeah to me i'll be honest i try not to get defined against anybody you know unless mm -hmm. i really have to be you know and i learned that in my as i was synthesizing all the psychologies i was watching the ways in which you know the leaders would get defined against others yeah trying to stake out a strong position and then it was almost always the way they tried to strengthen and assert their position against the others that would then lock them into actually an extreme position that was wrong outside mm -hmm. the dialectic. Okay? Yeah. So for me, I what I'm doing, at least in my position and style is just like, let's watch everybody. <laughs> Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And I've tried to play that balance as mm -hmm. well, because I think that that's ultimately right. And especially with, so it's kind of ironic, if you will, because, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, at the same time, there's, there's an element of this metamodern sensibility, which I think is really beautiful and precious and, and in some ways kind of fragile too, right? It's, mm -hmm. yeah. it's, it's, it has enough kind of paradox to it that it's, it's easy enough for people to kind of resolve that tension of sensonic, ironic sincerity, either towards mm -hmm. one end or the other, right? And, um, and so, I mean, you see that. You see either some people are attracted to it because they're sort of a kind of, oh, they're critiquing postmodernism. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, oh, so, well, yeah, and that's everything. Or, oh, I'm a postmodernist and I get the whole, you know, irony mm -hmm. thing here. Like, yeah. You know, and I want to maintain that really precious balance. And so I've, I've, to the extent that I've got, you know, a horse in the race of, of, of critiquing, uh, of, of trying to be in the business of, I forget the way you just said it, but like being against something or, or <laughs> being contra something, or whatever. It's only, I mean, I suppose arguably everyone's intentions are, are sure. relatively like this, but there's sort mm -hmm. of like, there's a, a desire that you want to preserve something that you think is good. Um, and so that, that sensibility is, is what I, I want to be like, let's I not totally lose that. Um, no, I, yeah. I, I really, I mean, I, I was, a, you know, I was in the minority. I, I, I wanted to support the little video uh, on the, on the dark Renaissance thing. I was, I'm all, you know, when I did my little thing with Bard, you talking with him, I consider him a deep and good friend, um, mm. but it was dark Renaissance versus enlightenment 2.0. And I'm mm. enlightenment 2.0. I'm more on the bill going into game B into, and I, it, I'll never, 
I'll see what happens to the term metamodern, but with the way it, sincere irony hit me and the way the whole post-postmodern grand meta-narrative and the whole sensibility of this community, you know, I, I think that the dark Renaissance shade of it is beautiful, but I just see it as one shade. And really mm -hmm. the epicenter for me is much more metamodern game B. At least that's where I am. And ultimately Utah's an enlightenment 2.0 mission. It's like, I just mm -hmm. want to hone in analytically, at least at the, at the level of pure logos justification. My position is I don't really give a shit about all the political shit. It's like yeah. there's an analytic problem that we fucked up in relationship to what happened with mm -hmm. science, uh, mm -hmm. matter in motion, onto epistemology. I can fix that. Uh, and then mm -hmm. we're going to see what happens. But it certainly then situates me in a metamodern game B enlightenment 2.0 vision is that's yeah. what I take out yeah. my line. No, definitely. And I, I, you know, there's sort of the, the irony I was going to gesture to is just that, like, if you see a, a, a kind of uptick in uh, hyper auto critique, you mm -hmm. know, and sort of like hyper sort of uh, potentially cynical readings mm -hmm. of like all this stuff that then leads to fissuring and all this mm -hmm. stuff. Um, then you're in a position where it's like, well, you have to critique critique, which isn't really a good position to be in, sort of uh, counterproductive. Uh, so I think you're right. I mean, it's better to kind of try to see this, you know, I like Joe Lightfoot's liminal web because it kind mm -hmm. of encapsulates this into a broader kind of ecology. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I think that there's a, always a kind of challenging, uh, and I deal with this a lot moderating this metamodern spirituality Facebook group, mm -hmm. like when you try to uh, um, kind of cultivate a certain ethos and a certain level of engagement and connection that's hopefully really edifying and good for people yep. that can often mean having to be like oh i'm gonna not allow shit posters i'm gonna have to not allow the people coming yeah. in who just want to you know take things down you know figuratively speaking sure um and so then you're in that weird balance of like having to say no because you want to say yes to things and it's totally. kind of a classic paradox Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so I feel like any community is going to kind of have to negotiate those sorts of things. And, um, you know, I think that healthy debate is, is always a good thing, but then it's always like, well, what if it's not healthy? Right. And then, yeah. and then I, I, I thought that to me, the thing, uh, seemed healthy. I mean, and just in terms of the conversations that you, you participated in, uh, what happened on the list, some of the post conversations on the stoa and things like that. Mm -hmm. I, I like that little slice and I, I'm basically in love with my people. I mean, I've, I've found, you know, yeah. uh, this structure, I've, I've said that to a number of people. It's like, I think I found my people here. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, I, I share that sentiment very much. So, so, yeah. We're about at the hour and a half marker. Um, you know, I'd like to, we sort of look at the horizon of the conversation and the horizon of your own sense of future. Um, as you look out or as you came into this conversation, is there anything that you want to sort of share as you look out on the horizon or that you want to make sure that we cover in the context of uh, this discussion? Not, well, one, I, I, I do want to mention again that retreat, which ah, is happening. Yes, let's come um, back to that. That'd be great. Yeah, so that's happening in May, May 13th to the 15th. Um, we'll put that in the be, show notes, a little, I yeah, like that the, little, uh, you know. The video, uh, yeah. One minute. Thank you for sharing that around. Of course. Um, yeah, so that's coming up. Uh, it's really, I mean, it's, I mean, today's March 1st or so it's, you know. That's right. It's, it's, March, April, you know, all of a sudden yeah, we'll be there. Party it up. away. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's going to be here in Vermont uh, at Sky Meadow Retreat, which is the retreat center that um, yeah, I'm the caretaker at and and uh, the the homesteader. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to that. It'll be the first time I'm going to meet you know a lot of these uh, a lot of fellows of the tribe in person. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited for that. You're going to be here. You're yep. going to be giving a a, a talk um, on you talk. Uh, <laughs> you talking some... now? <laughs> yeah. So that's awesome. Um, uh, Layman Pascal is going to be kind of leading the, the, the majority of it, but Bruce Alderman will also be here. And we've got a number of people 
double digits now signed up. So um, it's going to be, it's going to be a full, beautiful event. So I want to mention that. Um, And then just uh, to also uh, plug my own work again, if people are interested in any of these um, topics, this is sort of when I say I've kind of been engaged with this kind of stuff for, you know, a little over a decade, it's sort of these ideas. Um, And so I just recently uh, uh, kind of re-released a different version of that epic poem I I mentioned at the outset of our conversation. So I found that a 500 page uh, epic poem if you just kind of throw it out into the ether, it's a little bit too much to chew on. Um, and so what I did is I kind of made a, a, a kind of anthologized version, huh. um, which kind of gives you all the relevant context, but it also, it's, it's the selected passages that are the most relevant to this community, to metamodernism, right. to the liminal web. It's called the God emerging. And huh. um, so I well, kind of dispense with all that war in heaven, epic stuff pretty quickly, and then kind of get into where are we now and where are we going? And um, yeah, the, the idea of like, what is the God emerging? You have the image of the, the elephant sun God, which I love and will use. Uh, I also have this image of the kaleidoscopic eye, which relates to ah, other things. Yes. Um, so anyway, huh. it's, it's sort of a mythopoeic dealing with our potential future and sort of, it, it, I wrote it, as I said, in that period when I, I, uh, I, I had yet to encounter this community, but I was sort of intuiting that it would arise. And so I, I kind of imagine, you know, that, that this guy goes in search of God to bring back some element of the sacred. He comes back from the underworld and, uh, and who does he find but this group of artists and thinkers, you know, on the edge of the city who are disillusioned with everything and want to overthrow the beast and the salesman and, uh, you know, set up something meaningful and beautiful. So yeah. It's a fucking it's- premonition. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it was like, I've been waiting, you know, for this sort of community. So I hope that um, if people feel that they really, you know, grok all the stuff that we're talking about, that um, this is just kind of my first major attempt uh, to try to mythopoetically express a lot of these ideas and, and deal with them. So um, yeah, I would, I'd, I'd love to throw that out there. And the last thing I'll say is just that um, where my horizons are is, as I've been saying, trying to translate this stuff, your work and the work of others that, that kind of constitutes this metamodern meta-narrative into mythic form. And I've been working on this now for a little bit in a project I haven't released anything about yet, but that'll be coming soon. And uh, so more on that to come. There's, uh, I think it'll be a really special, interesting thing. Um, and I expect this to be a very long-term project. It's a very... Wow. Um, you know, it'll be a very, yeah, uh, sizable sort of project in a kind of Dantean uh, vision. Mm. But um, so more on that to come. But uh, and yeah, I suspect we'll be in touch about that as well, because um, there's there's a there's a lot of input that I want from the kind of figures and thinkers who are articulating these ideas to kind of, in some ways, be a part of the you know, uh, collaborative, co-creative element of, of giving expression to them as well. So I want it, I want this sort of to be not just a work that I'm doing, mm-hmm. but also something that I'm, I'm taking in your work and I'm taking in Hansi's work and, you know, integral stuff. And I'm, I'm kind of in, you know, all this stuff, right. And kind of uh, expressing it in, in symbolic mythopoeic form in a story uh, with art and all these other things. So that's so uh, awesome. Yeah. Oh man, so, that's just yeah. great. Yeah. It's a glorious uh, connection friend. I mean, I definitely feel a, a spiritual, you know, brotherhood with you in relationship to this. And I can feel that in our stories and, uh, just that you're doing that and that we're doing our thing in, in parallel and complementary ways is, is joyful. So I really deeply Indeed. appreciate your Love it. Yeah. And I can't so. wait to meet you in person in May. So that'll be, a yeah, man, uh, I'll bring you up an iQuad coin. <laughs> I would love that. I'd love uh, that. Definitely bring you up an iQuad coin. So, and Perfect. we'll put your, uh, links in the show notes and all of that. 
And uh, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom and vision. It's been great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. All right. Well, we'll be in touch. All right. Take Take care. care. All right. Bye-bye.